another point that I want to make is the patient point. Why do I think medical devices are so fascinating? And um, my, my really kind of, the, the most important experience I ever had in my medical device uh, career was we, we developed this uh, transophageal echocardiography probe. Uh, first, it was an annual array, also quite complex electromechanical ultrasound probe to swallow to get an image from the heart. And, and we did that in, in Trondheim uh, and then uh, moved it to, to Lindemann Sound in Horten and started to do the manufacturing. And we were in the first clinical um, and we were going to be the first patient. Um, this was a, at Ulmol University Hospital in Oslo. Um, we were standing there um, and we were waiting for the first patient. And through the door come my, uh, comes my high school math teacher as the patient. So, and, and I, I designed that temperature sensor in, inside that probe. So I, I remember that room was, it just got compressed. It got much smaller and I, I had to get out, I uh, remember. I, I couldn't be in there. And I was thinking about how, how what could go wrong. Um, and he was a great math teacher, and uh, I had a lot of respect for him. So, but it all went well. All went well. And um, but, but the point is that the medical devices we are developing is going to be used on your high school math teacher or your, you know, someone's father, mother, uncle. So it's about people, and and so this this is some that experience to me was truly transformational, truly understanding how important uh, these devices are for people. Uh, and one day uh, I will need a medical device myself. So one day uh, I will be the patient. And, and that, that also is quite inspiring, I think, in, in developing something new. <laughs>
a lot of fun. And I remember I took all the material I could get from the US and brought it to Europe <laughs> and tried to reproduce what they took care of what you were building in the US. So you did a good job and excellent job there. So thank you. I look back uh, to those years with a uh, fond memory. Thank you. It's very kind of you to say. So uh, thanks for thanks again for joining us. So uh, when uh, one of the things I do when I start this is do something called define the word warm up, where I offer up a couple of words and ask you to provide your kind of like response or reflection on what that means to you in the context of kind of med tech startups. Uh, so uh, with that, you ready? I think I'm. What's the first okay. word? Message. Ooh. Message. Well, I'm, I'm, first of all, kind of, I, I have to frame this a little bit. Remember, I'm not a marketing expert in any way. Uh, I'm an engineer of training and I loved it. Uh, did that for my first uh, five, six years uh, in a professional medtech company in Norway called Vinvet uh, Sound. And then by chance, uh, I got into sales and marketing. Um, and so I learned that the hard way uh, on the street, basically cold calling in the beginning and tried to do the transition from being an engineer to going to sales and marketing. So uh, that journey was maybe my toughest transition in my whole career, going from engineering to sales and marketing. But I really enjoyed it. So message to me is, of course, to, for me, it is to understand the, your customer, uh, number one. Understand the product you have and how to frame it in a way where it's easily to be communicated. And some of the products that I've developed and been so fortunate to develop and, and been co-founder of several companies are quite complex technologies where you are coming with a new concept of what, how what you're going to do, how are you going to change what you're doing, and why. Uh, and I remember very well when we started the first uh, pitch and the sales pitches uh, in medicine, uh, which was an intraoperative flow meter for cardiac surgeons. And we went to multiple professors in cardiac surgery in Europe. And uh, I went in and said, you know, why should you measure your coronary bypass flows? And the reaction was like immediately the same across all these professors in cardiac surgery was, I don't need that. I, you know, I, I don't need to measure my flows. Every flow is perfect. And I, 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 sh I couldn't understand it. I mean, we have this great innovation. It was clearly something they needed. Uh, it is to verify what you're already doing, and that is to you know do an osmosis proximal and then distal and measure the flow in it. So of course you want to measure the flow. And they said, no, I don't need it at all. And then I learned it uh, on pushback and on the messaging. I learned it the fun way. When you get that kind of a pushback, I learned to go well. You might not need it, but maybe your resident will need. And that was the sales pitch that we used after that. And it was, I don't know if I really answer your question with regard to messaging, but I think it, it learned me something that is very important. And that is what you think is obvious to you 
which is, you know, is a must thing that you have to do as a professional, is not obvious to the, the customer that you're trying to sell. So today I spend a lot of time to understand what the right messaging is. Uh, and you can call it positioning as well. And, and how to position a new technology to a market that maybe have never used it. Because we are trying to fundamentally in medical devices and medicine with a new product, we're trying to change the way things are done one way or another. So you're affecting the workflow one way or another. So understanding that whole workflow, how your product fits into that workflow and how all the stakeholders are going to win, figuring that thing out from a messaging perspective requires a lot of work and a lot of discussions and a lot of uh, customer meeting to, to really get that messaging and that positioning right. So that's maybe my conclusion today. Something that I thought was very, very simple in the beginning uh, is just go out and sell what you have. It is getting more and more complex and you need to nail the messages, not only to the professors of the world, but also more and more to the nurses who will support the cases, to the circular nurses, to the scrub nurse, to everyone in that cath lab or the OR, and of course, more and more importantly, to the payers and the administrators in that hospital. So the picture is, it's getting much more complex than when I was starting to try to sell these flow meters. And figuring that equation out is, is challenging, but it's also a lot of fun. Some great points you made in there about uh, what may seem, I'm paraphrasing, <laughs> but what may seem obvious to you, not you, but you know, to we think is obvious about a, a product or service when we go out there to the customer and talk to them about it. Uh, is not obvious to them, right? So it's so critical to, as you pointed out, I love that you have to go out and talk to them and listen to what they're reflecting back to you and, and work to find like, what is that, uh, what is that message? Like the one that you landed on was, you know, could this be something that your residents, because, you know, you are the best at what you do, you wouldn't, of course, need to validate the quality of your anastomoses. <laughs> well, what about your resident? What about the person not at an academic teaching hospital, right? So um, I think that that idea of how you ask that and how you figure that out and how you work through that is really critical to the message. And also the idea that you pointed out of the increasing kind of influence of uh, other people in the kind of customer ecosystem is right is is very critical to understanding how things are going to work and then the third thing uh that i thought that it was a great point was the idea of workflow and understanding i find that's very underappreciated the idea of where does the pay you know whether it's the patient or right where does the patient come from where are they going to how and why uh and like you said, the workflow purely in the OR, you know, what happens when and how and why. Uh, you can't just say, hey, this is going to work great and it's going to help you with this and not understand who does what, when, why, how, 
and have it have adoption go particularly well. So yeah. great. I love your response to that. Oh, thank you. I, I, I think it's just fascinating to see how that has evolved. And, and also, uh, we talk a lot about MDR and how difficult MDR has, has become for mm-hmm. especially startups in Europe and also American startups. Uh, but what one thing that it has really done is to focus on workflow. It has really kind of put the focus and emphasis on usability and how this will be adapted across multiple stakeholders in in the cat lab or in the world. Yeah, that's a whole, we'll come back to usability. because I think that uh, that is a critical conversation uh, to have. So I, I have to give you at, at least another word. Okay. Uh, and so you mentioned it, you mentioned already this transition that you made from engineering to, to sales um, and what you learned about messaging. So the next word is marketing. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. So, so that's even more difficult, I think. Um, well, there I, I don't have very, very good answers to marketing. Uh, but to me, it is important to get the message across to your customer one way or another. So you can look at this from, you know, the, the big marketing campaigns that have been run in there in the Metronic or Abbott or Boston Scientific, clearly out of scope for any startup, we can't do that. Um, then then you can go all the way down to the sales rep and, and, and think about how they position their product, um, which is, I think, is part of that marketing approach. But what I, what I found um, more and more and this is also something we did actually in Atricure based on what uh, what I learned from what Atricure did in the US. But we we transported the thinking around how you do training of physicians. And for me, getting physicians trained in a new procedure is not directly marketing, it's much more sales. But mm-hmm. That's the most effective way I've seen to launch new products. I've not seen, excuse me if I'm, I'm offending you, but I've not really seen marketing campaigns work extremely well in smaller companies. But I've seen, and I'm coming in from a pure startup perspective now, I've seen companies do extremely well on education and training. And so if marketing can, can support that sales effort of how we in the field can be good and executing on sales and training, that converts to me to sales. So listening to my answer, I, I guess I'm more on the sales side than I'm on the marketing side. Uh, and a good communication between the marketing responsible and head of sales is of course crucial. And you, before I came on board in Atricure, you have already uh, established that with Rich, which was, you know, to me worked really, really great. Um, and I took that, moved it to Europe, and implemented a, a training program for cardiac surgeons uh, in at the university at the University Clinic of Barcelona, which 
which still is working today. I mean, the, the program is still ongoing. I think now trained more than 250, must be maybe even 500 cardiac surgeons in that program, both in uh, closed chest and open chest uh, ablation. And the program really works. You know, they, they get the material, they get to discuss the, the technology, they, they discuss different approaches for surgical treatment of AF, and minimal invasively and open heart. Uh, and now also more and more the, with the left and appendage clip. And that was a great marriage between sales and marketing. And when you get that to work, then you have just an enormous power uh, to penetrate the market as as you did in Africa and we did in Africa. Yeah. So uh, one thanks again for kind of walking back through the H care example and that idea of I think training and education is it's so critical, right? Because that's how what medicine, right? People in medicine have done a lot of, right? Years and years and years. Exactly. Of training and education. And so could you talk a little bit more about why you think or where you've seen that being um, really powerful? Like, why, why does that work better than some flashy marketing campaign? I'm going to. Oh, to me, uh, at the end of the day, it is to get the use, the customer to use your product on patient and help patient in a safe mm-hmm. and responsible manner. So, of course, this, this goes back to making sure that your technologies are, are applied according to the instructions they use, are used according to how the intended use is. Uh, that's, that's one point of securing outcomes, especially when you are talking about clinical trials. So how do you ensure that clinical trials are successful without training? I mean, that's, of course, impossible. And, and we did, especially on the closed chest side, uh, we did proctor ships, as you remember well, where we flew in experienced cardiac surgeons to support new uses of the technology. And this was not simple. I mean, th- this is probably the most complex procedure in cardiac surgery that, that I've seen. Now it's been much more refined, developed, uh, the innovators back then they are still working on it. They're developing this, uh, like, like uh, Professor Salzberg here in Zurich. So that's really fascinating to see. But to come back to your question, why do I think that is the most effective way? I think it positions you well to competition, number one. Because it gives them the perspective that you want good for the physicians, for their patients. And they get to train on your product, which is fine, but it's also enabling them to discuss what is the latest science, where are we coming from, where are we going with this technology, how can we combine catheter ablation with surgical ablation in these patients. I mean, all of these discussions, all of these debates of what is the right approach of using and applying this technology, I don't think we could advance that the far as we've done today without letting the physicians discuss and debate and find solutions. And that is, a, is something that comes through these training programs, which, which is, there are so many facets to this. You can, you can really never beat this uh, from any 
marketing campaign, uh, the sales part of it is you know letting your customers come with their sales rep or their distributors to the training session, uh, have a social frame around it at the same time as you are really working on the product and learning new approaches to how to use a product. So I've I've just seen that that is in my experience, the most effective way to launch products uh, anywhere, actually anywhere in the world, if that's Japan, the US, or Europe. That, yeah, great, great point. I think you've touched on a couple of things that are interesting about that, right? That it stays very, it keeps conversation very, it facilitates a conversation for starters, right? Amongst people who, have more experience and people are interested in right starting um and it develops that kind of network right as well it's almost uh it's almost networking in, in a bit of a way right and uh and expanding kind of getting that what should i say almost like mind share or the kind of the some of the best minds thinking together Right about how to do this and and where to do this. I'm wondering if you think that it makes me think of. Um, I know when we, in the past, when I've launched, kind of you know, I've been in companies where we launch very novel products, right? Like Epicure, that oftentimes there there are individuals who want to do the hey the like most how should I say it? Uh, not a mainstream case. <laughs> Uh, they want to choose a, a very difficult or an outlier um, type of case. I don't know how else to phrase that. And uh, do you think to the training and education helps kind of level set, uh, you know, physicians, surgeons, et cetera, on kind of like how to educate themselves when they get back to their institutions, like where to start, what to try next? how to think about that. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. Well, just, just to take uh, one, one point that you were touching upon, which I think is important. And that is, if you, if you look at the two positioning uh, points of, hey, why don't you want to use this flow meter compared to let's discuss how we use this flow meter. Mm. Right? And, right. And that is a, and none, I mean, none of us wants to be in a confrontational spot when we buy anything or start to use. Yeah, I mean, we, we want to buy it because we, we like the product, we like the people, we believe in the technology, we believe in the outcomes, right? I mean, right. Th this is why we buy something. I mean, everyone has a buying experience and buying a new car, buying a house, whatever. And it's the same thing. I mean, you want... To, to do this and there are emotions involved and so on. But you want to do it also when it's non-confrontational. So you want to be able to have a peer discussion or at least a professional discussion mm -hmm. with the company representatives, if that's sales reps or engineers, being an engineer myself. Uh, I think that engineers have a lot to both contribute in the discussion, but also to take away from that customer interaction back to what they are doing at home. 
uh, in the lab or, or in the development. And, and most of the drives I've seen with it on a tangent is really driven by engineers in the field of medical devices. Um, but, but to come back to your question of, of preventing outliers and selecting the right patient for the right procedure at the right time, which is a, it's a pace of tools slogan, but uh, really it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's uh, one of those things that are, are important. Uh, I think it could. I, I think uh, the physicians will not go for, yeah, at least these days, they will not go for the outliers. They will not go for the difficult cases if that is not part of a protocol. Now, if you look at minimal invasive heart valves and everyone that observed that field and how that evolved knows that it was a you know inoperative patient, the patient that couldn't go on a heart valve machine that got the first minimal invasive heart valve. So clearly the strategy was to focus on the non-operative patients uh, that, that couldn't go through uh, open heart surgery and then move from there, which was an extremely effective launch strategy. And, and you see how that field has exploded and covering more and more patients. So, so that is, is a very effective strategy, but for in general, for smaller segments and for technologies that are uh, complex, and all of these com uh, technologies are complex. I think training could definitely have the physicians agree on what the right patient cohort is. You can do that in the training session, or you can do that in your scientific advisory board meetings where you can have those discussions of what are the right patients we're going to treat, when are we going to treat them, what's the selection process, what are the endpoints that we're going to go after uh, for this clinical trial or overall for the field. So again, it's it's training session for me is a way to have a professional discussion about very complex issues without being confrontational about that you have to use this product because no one wants to use a product if that's the framing of why you should use it. I mean, you use it because you want to, you believe it will help your patient over time. Mm -hmm. So I hope that answered your question. Yeah, absolutely. I think that idea of it is it's a conversation, right? It's not how many times can I hit, you know, to be kind of crass, but how many times can I hit someone over the head with what I want them to do, right? That's not, that's not how this goes. Exactly. The <laughs> conversation about science, it's a conversation about patient selection, it's a conversation about what, you know, what the fit is. Yeah. Um, so okay. you're coming about like the right, you always say like the right message at the right time to the right, to the right people. Yeah. So, yeah. That makes that the training education piece makes a lot of sense. Uh, if we if we think about um, clinicals, right? You started to talk about right training education and kind of clinicals and protocols. Yeah. And to that extent, how do you think through kind of there always seems to be this tension between and, and it's a conversation internally that I've been involved in where. You know, regulatory is like, look, this is the easiest thing for us to, the easiest indication for us to get initially and get yeah. in the market. Yeah. And marketing's like, but the one we want is this one over here. And <laughs> there has to be, right, time and money and, you know, that conversation about where's the middle ground and how do we think about that? 
and what kind of a lot of times as well clinical if it's a separate function the size and length of the trial right to prove a specific point so can you and all of that gets to the message that can be kind of conveyed right the claims and the message that can be conveyed when you go to market and commercialize so how how have you thought you have any what are your insights for how to think about that how to balance that out um what's the right approach to that I don't think there is one right approach to that. Um, and as you know, these discussions are, are in companies, are small or large, it doesn't matter, really, are very intense uh, and, and very, very important for the, and maybe that's why they get so intense, because everyone, sales, marketing, regulatory quality, has a role in that discussion. Everyone are looking at something they believe is the same, but it's not. From their perspective, all of the different professionals have a different view of what they need in that process. Um, we are in the midst of that now in Tool, where we are trying to pan out, number one, what's the end game, right? And there is one additional element, which is, of course, very important, that is how are we going to get paid for our devices? So how do we make sure that reimbursement is part of that overall strategy? Mm -hmm. uh, so, number one, where it all starts, it starts with the safety for the patients. So, that's kind of obvious. You need to make sure that your first clinical trials are ensuring that this device is safe. And, yeah, anyone in this field knows that the first step in that process is kind of a must thing that you have to do is the safety feasibility study. So that, that's a given. I think everyone will agree that, yes, we need to do a safety feasibility study. The question is how many patients? Well, it could be 20, it could be 30. You need input from maybe your notified body. You need to discuss the endpoints maybe with the FDA or at least in your scientific advisory board so you understand what the endpoints are. But that's kind of a, a, a no-go or, or absolutely go. This is something you have to do. So, so now you go and you do the safety feasibility and it's on some kind of, and I, I, I love to do this, which is the claim for this is a tool claim. And this is a proven strategy that we have used long, long time. We started with that in in medicine, and I've used that for all my companies. And the tool claim says something very simple. It says, I can measure coronary flow. I can measure a pressure. I can measure something that I need um, accurately enough. So I can measure it accurately. Fine. So what you need to prove to the regulators is, well, I, on the benchtop testing that you do, I need to show that I can measure these accurately and in a clinical trial you need to do the same that's kind of the, the first step and this you can take to an observational large observational study of of 60 or 100 patients maybe to get the initial data set clinical data set the difficulty comes in when you come into the bigger trials you know so how do you set yourself up to get to the randomized clinical trial that you need for reimbursement. And, and now, from a regulatory perspective, 
you need to make sure that the regulators buy into your endpoints. You need to make sure that they agree that the data we generate already will support a randomized clinical trial. Um, and you are now talking about the clinical endpoint. And this is where uh, marketing and sales are coming very importantly in and reimbursement. I think when we look at that whole road, that whole journey, the end game, you need to focus on the end game. The end game is to get your product on the market with a clinical claim that supports your reimbursement strategy and secures your own reimbursement. That's the end game. Mm -hmm. How to get there, how many patients, when, in which centers, in which geographies is part of this constant, <clears throat> excuse me, the constant debate that goes on in the company to, to figure out that world. And, and it gets very intense because the whole company rides on this clinical strategy. So when investors ask me, well, what is the most, what is the highest risk in your company? It generally comes down to exactly this point. It's come down to how you implement, how you design your clinical strategy to an end position that everyone believes in, that that's where we want to be at the end of the day. It can be a long road. Um, with Miracore, one, one of the companies that I started or was part of the starting team in Miracore, it's been a very long journey. Actually, in these days, they're going to publish a randomized double-blind clinical data uh, mm. for a technology to improve microcirculation in acute heart attack patients. And that kind of technology is extremely complex. You are trying to change the workflow in the cath lab for acute heart attack patients uh, that are undergoing a stent where everyone has been talking about door to balloon times and so on. So you're trying to get in there in order to improve the microcirculation term. And you want to show that this endpoint of infarct size reduction at five days, that that's also in a randomized clinical trial. And when you talk to anyone that has been part of this journey, it's 14 years since we started the company, 2008. Wow. And uh, the data on the randomized trial is still not out. It's been a very, very long journey with a lot of professional input to that whole journey. And it's basically nail-biting excitement right now to see what that data is going to come out like. And so for everyone that has seen that and observed it and lived it, it's, it's, actually, it's not only intense now, but it's been intense the whole time from we did the first in-man uh, study in Europe until this randomized clinical trial in 144 patients. So it's it's very uh, fascinating to see how long these journeys have become. Part of this is, of course, the clearer you are in the beginning of what you need to do, the quicker you can execute. So that, that's clear. And, and we need to compress and be better at compressing those timelines. That's, that's very key. I, I I love when, you, when you're talking about knowing what the end game is and being very clear about that and then kind of backing it up with all the input that from all the different groups 
the need to kind of align, you know, clinicals reimbursement, right? Design clinical reimbursement uh, in order to get the right outcome at the end of the day, the right claims, reimbursement for those claims, uh, that you have to kind of project the, the future a bit and make sure you have the right input at the front in order to hit those marks and that they can take a, can take a long time, like you're talking about with Miracor in 14 years. So yeah, I think to me that input is really important. So, so teaming up with professionals early on to get the right input, uh, I, I find that invaluable. Uh, I'm just listening to physicians, how they talk about the technologies and how it could fit into their practice is, of course, totally fascinating. And, and of course, we want to be part of that whole journey. Sometimes those discussions also are difficult because you, they need to be aligned on where we want to go. But um, the earlier in the startup or emerging medical device company, as I like to call them, the earlier you can get this input, the, the quicker you can get to pan out that whole, hopefully not that long as 14 years, but, but, but that, that whole journey you can, can define, talk about and discussing your board and discussing among your stakeholders internally and externally. I think that that's a that's a key a key point about compressing timelines because ultimately that goes to something that, that you and I were talking about kind of before uh, before the call and that is investors right <laughs> so if there's a if you think you start with I always say start with the end in mind you're talking about end game same thing right? but if you start with the end in mind uh, you think about the end game very thoroughly at the beginning, which takes a lot of time and effort and stakeholders, as you pointed out, then there's the potential, right? There are always bumps in the road, but then there's the potential, you were saying, to then compress that timeline in a thoughtful way. Velocity. Uh, compress and investors, right? That means money fast, you know, <laughs> money fast, get their money, the return back fast. Right. And, you know, we, we're sitting here in October 2022, and um, it's probably the most difficult financing climate I've seen in my whole career. And when we closed the first financing round in uh, Miracor, that was in August 2008. And in September, the market went south. I mean, it was just we closed the month before. and. And now we, we are here, and this market is brutal from an entrepreneur perspective. It's very, very hard to raise funds. Uh, it's very hard to get uh, your message, again, coming back to your message, get, get your message through to the right people, uh, to the right investors uh, that believe in you, in the company, where we're heading. So I, uh, I think this is uh, crucial to, to understand what the investors need in order to be comfortable in putting their money into the company. Uh, and this discussion is, of course, part of that investor discussion is when or what do we need to show in order to get to our exit? And there will be normally many exit time points in that whole journey. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and they are mostly related to clinical. So if you meet a corporate, they will immediately ask you, well, when is your first exam? Uh, so everyone is thinking clinical. You need to know that timeline and you need to articulate to uh, your current investors and your future investors that this will create value. But what I've found more and more, which I think also is a very fascinating thought process is when you think about clinical or you think about an asset or technology, what would the corporates do when they have that asset? What would the electronic do or an Abbott or a Boston Scientific do mm-hmm. when they are sitting on that asset? Uh, and asking that question uh, creates a whole other thought process in the company. I, you know, people are starting to think, okay, we need to be more strategic. We need to be more clear, more focused to get to that end game. So it helps that internal, excuse me, that internal dis- discussion to compress that timeline, both from an investor perspective, but also at the end of the day, one of these companies are going to hopefully want to buy the asset and then they want to see that we understood that whole journey and it makes important what are they important milestones or important uh, progress mm-hmm. across that whole line and so that, that's that's how i think about that uh, journey uh trying to frame it from a corporate perspective trying to compress it, so being earlier to discuss the difficult points very early and getting quickly to that clinical strategy that can get you to, to value and at the end of the day also help patients uh, to, to live better lives. Mm-hmm. Corporate, compressed, clinicals. Little alliteration always makes it easy to remember. <laughs> so I, I love that idea of thinking through the right because people want to know what the comparables look like it's like selling a house what do the comparables look like who's exited how um because in you know far and away in med tech right for decades now the exit is some kind of m a it's not some kind of merger acquisition it is it's not an ipo far and away that's unusual atricure is kind of an unusual one in that category in that from that perspective so how do you how do you think through not just the the exit, but you're talking about corporate and the fit, right? This kind of end game, and then at the front end, this idea of corporate and clinicals and compression. How do you think about corporate from the front end? Do you, you kind of match it up against three of the billion dollar global companies and say, how might this how might this work? How would we think about this differently? And try to project like who else are going to buy in the meantime and what they may look like or what what's kind of the your thought process on that uh, now i think everyone of us will agree that you know you, you are you cannot build a company for an exit every one of us will agree to that so it's clear you know it's even possible to understand mm-hmm. what that exit will look like so you need to, at the same time as you are thinking about your milestones and thinking about possible value inflection points and takeoff points, you need to build and think about building a company as is, as if 
you were actually going to sell devices in the market. So you need to have that thought in your mind as well. You, know, you need to understand, if I have that in my bag, how would I be successful as a sales rep? Mm. So that, that's, that, that's part of that, that thinking. Um, but I think it comes back to where we started uh, of talking to your customers and talking to the corporates. And again, this is uh, networking. It is uh, talking to as many professionals, uh, salespeople, marketing uh, executives, and management in the larger corporate. For startups, I think it's very, very important to absolutely know crystal clear where the need is in the different companies you're talking to. Mm. All of them have different experiences, have different setups, have different technologies in their bag mm -hmm. that could be a fit or where you can fit in better than in others. So you need to understand that position statement. Again, it comes back to talking to the, the you know, to to the corporates, but being able to have the right message to different of these corporates, which which could be different, and this is very hard for for a small startup or a, a small company to do. Again, the secret to this is to set up meetings, start talking to the corporates quite early, actually, again to compress the timelines, and and ask them what are the critical parts. Of, uh, of the takeout. And the answers that we get back are very different and, and very surprising. Um, some of them are not even talking about clinical. They take clinical regulatory quality as given, right? It's, it's, of course, you have to have that. It's kind of, that's the basis. For us, that's uh, still, you know, several mountains or hurdles to climb, but, but, but this is, the corporates will look at it much more, now, how can I scale this product in my market and with my mm -hmm. sales force? How can I, how can I use this opportunity of this market to capture market share, uh, to be more profitable and to be able to sell more of maybe my current devices into a very competitive market. Mm -hmm. And understanding that fit and, and just the scalability part is, of course, a big challenge for, <clears throat> because that goes back to manufacturing, <clears throat> goes back to development. Who do you partner with in order to do your development and manufacturing? Mm -hmm. All of that together. Um, and, and that answer is kind of surprising that corporates are willing to pay more if you have a scalable asset than a prototype. It's mm -hmm. kind of clear, but very few companies are putting in huge efforts or used resources to do process validation, for instance. I mean, process validation, we are not very good at that in startups. Um, we should, <clears throat> excuse me, because the companies are telling us that they will pay more if we have a scalable product that can be manufactured safely and mm -hmm. in larger volumes when we get there. But of course, uh, there are 
pay notes here. I'm going to the board of a startup to your investors and say, hey, I need five million to do uh, process validation. It's not going to fly. So that's again, you need to get that balance between what is asked by the corporate mm-hmm. and where you are in that whole discovery of understanding the clinical benefit and the regulatory pathway and the reimbursement. Yeah, so it's fascinating that from the, in addition to the group of folks we typically see as customers, right, and then these additional kind of influencers who are weighing in more heavily on these decisions from the clinic, from the kind of provider clinical medical side of things, uh, that thinking through how corporate, you know, kind of ultimate end game, uh, corporate ultimate end game, thinking through scale, like, can they, right? Can they take your proof of principle, what you've done, what you've proven, and can they just add, can they just basically add cash and multiply it, right? Add more marketing, add more people, add more um, and mul- more manufacturing money and multiply it. And how does it, does it allow them to sell, you know, gain share, right? So scale, share, you had a third one. Uh, and then it was like sales adjacencies. Like, does it help them sell more of what they already have? And so really, so they're a customer, right? Essentially of a different type, right? Like investors are um, to take into consideration. Yeah. And and again, I have found this, uh, these conversations, normally they are at conferences uh, Mm -hmm. over a cup of coffee or in the meeting room, Uh, even half an hour. It's amazing how much information you get out of those conversations. And I think if you convert just part of that uh, in order to think what's the effective way, who's the right partner for you, uh, short, mm-hmm. could be a potential investor as well. And, and you will find that out very quickly uh, when you talk to me. So again, starting early, having those conversations and continue to feed information on what you achieve to the corporates, I, I think it's a true proven way to get your message across. Mm-hmm. Your third point was profitability, I just remembered. <laughs> Scale, share, profitability, sales adjacencies, like ability to... Yeah, and, and this I learned the hard way also in Atomic when we launched uh, Medicine in the US. So um, it is very hard for a company coming in with a technology into a corporate, into a corporate, and were you part of a bag? I mean, these sales reps, of course, they have multiple products in a bag, and you will not be successful if you cannot get to at least twenty percent minimum of their sales volume of their mm-hmm. quota. Because that is exactly what they need in order to hit their quota in order to get their bonus. So if you are struggling to get to 5% or 10% of that that bag of the revenue, you are stuck. I mean, you cannot scale and you cannot expand. So you need to get to that where the sales representatives understand that if, if I take this on board with a relatively 
low effort relative for a new breakthrough technology, I can get 20% more revenue out of all my customers and it will be a fun process. It will be interesting. I will build my relationship over time, relationships I couldn't have before with my current bank. Mm. So, so that is, is a very, very important aspect of, of being successful. So if you can find that way of how you fill the bag of sales reps with 20% or more of what they're already selling, I think that's, that, that is what you need to find out as a start. That's really fascinating. I've always considered sales a customer of marketing um, because it doesn't matter how great the product is. If they don't want to sell it, I mean, they are not sales. I have the utmost amount of respect for sales. Uh, and they are, uh, how should I say it? I have found in my experience that uh, the compensation needs to exceed the effort required, right? And they need to, as you said, right, just as you said, to kind of trust that this is going to expand the relationship or grow the relationship or allow them to have new relationships that kind of benefit them long-term. And it's critical to be able to tell that story uh, and, you know, have it be real, but (laughs) tell that story uh, and make that happen in order to get it moving and not just be kind of a dead on the shelf. You know, I'm touching upon sales. I think we have the same experience now. Again, I I fell into sales and I I love sales and I'm you know I'm very respectful as you of the professional medical device sales representatives mm-hmm. out there, and they are doing an, an, an amazing job. Um, I. I still remember from working with the Medtronic Salesforce in cardiac surgery, uh, how some of these top performer sales uh, representatives would come to your training. I mean, this is, remember, this is a small Norwegian company coming to the US mm-hmm. and it's like you're opening a black box and you see, wow, this is a big place, right? It's just a huge place. How do you attack that? And, um, and then in the first, training session without, we have sent out material. And of course, you know very well that from a marketing perspective, we don't expect salespeople to have read through that when you do the training. I mean, they, they will come, I mean, most, most of us, I mean, salespeople or not, will probably not just have the time or find the time to read through the material. But the top salespeople will come to your training session and they read through all your clinicals, all your articles. And they will ask pretty difficult questions that you probably didn't think about before you launched your product. Remember, this is a Norwegian company coming to the US without any sales uh, traction in the US at all. So uh, having those conversations with the sales reps and, and working with them, being out in the field, Seeing how they were able to convert customers uh, was truly inspirational for me. And I, I always remember those instances where the sales reps were going out there, having, as they called the, the come to Jesus meeting after trying to convert this account for 
a year. I mean, they were at it for a year to convert the account. And they converted the whole account in, in one day. Uh, and it is it's elegant, it is professional. And it's unfortunate that, you know, where I'm coming from, like Norway, a sales rep is not given any credit at all. Mm. I mean, it's it's not a profession that everyone anyone respects. Uh, whereas when you see it professionally implemented, as you can see uh, in Europe or in the US or Japan, I've seen it in Japan as well. It, it's it's truly amazing to see how these sales reps are converting your idea, your product into revenue. And another critical customer, right? <laughs> I'm just thinking through corporate at the beginning and clinical and all the other necessary, right? Reimbursement, et cetera. But thinking through, right, how is sales going to, how is this going to impact them? How will, you know, they on the corporate side be able to do that kind of 20% rule that you talked about where this will make up a significant part of what they can sell, how does it elevate the relationships or expand the relationships, uh, I think are really critical kind of insights um, from this perspective, particularly coming in, like you said, as a small startup from, you know, Norway, for example, to, you know, to um, the U.S. where you didn't have kind of any traction. Yeah, it's, that's fascinating. And it's fascinating to hear that the top reps did kind of consume the material in advance and prepare in advance. We're the most prepared, right? So it says a lot about the kind of activities, right, that the top people do. No, I, I, I'm this, uh, especially one Brian Thorson in, in uh, Milwaukee. I remember him uh, because he did exactly that. He was so amazing. Uh, and he's still selling products today, I know, uh, and is doing a fabulous job. But he learned me so much about how you, as a professional sales rep, understand your product, understand your customer, and then have this, uh, as they say in German, Fingerspitzgefühl, have this feeling of, okay, when is the right point to, to push? When And when is it not the right point? time point to push mm -hmm. and it's a lot we're touching about on psychology here of course but but the, and i don't really believe that there are born sales reps i mean sales is a professional is a professional activity that you learn over time and the best sales reps they have this amazing feel of when they're going to go in and get the business and when they should not and Observing that real life, real time, uh, was for me uh, an amazing experience. Again, coming out of, of Norway uh, back in 2000. Yeah, that's, yeah. Great, great, great experience. Great insights uh, into the things to consider at the beginning of this, you know, as early on as possible. <laughs> in the consideration of a startup or you're saying emerging kind of medical device or med tech company. And uh, yeah, to save time, to know what you're going to study clinically, to understand how it lines up with corporate, uh, all of that, right? So that is 
That is super helpful. Um, are there are there any? Did you look back? Kind of any mistakes or missteps that uh, you made as relates to kind of messaging and and by marketing and also kind of like product management uh, that were critical to kind of getting to where you are today or understanding what you understand today. I think, uh, I mean, the, the first thought of so when the, the first CEO position in, in the core was <clears throat> totally fascinating for me. I learned a lot, but I didn't understand how important it was to compress that timeline mm. uh, for the stakeholders. Um, so if, if I would do, and I'm doing that again in place of Drupal, and, and I, you know, I've, you, you get a little bit hooked from this startup because it, it's so fascinating to do it again. And hopefully, when you do it again, you can do it, you know, compress the time, uh, be even faster to the decision, challenge uh, your current thinking. Mm -hmm. That is the number one thing that I didn't understand in the beginning, how important that is. Um, so that was clearly a mistake. And uh, that's, that's one part of it. Uh, the other part of it is when you talk about stakeholders, uh, understanding in the company that there are so many stakeholders, uh, both internally. I mean, in Pacetool, we are a young, founded in 2019, startup company, emerging medical device company, sorry. And we are we are learning to work together, right? And we're learning how to make sure that we are picking all the boxes as quickly as we can. And we're an engineering-based company. It's engineers that are driving this to build a bigger position. So this fascination of, of having engineers that are converting the vision of the founder on Senegal to something that, that over time will develop into something bigger I think if you could get that right with quite intense communication internally between the employees uh, on all levels. I mean, we're doing a, a very advanced device with a class three catheter and a console or a single amplifier and the software. So that's a complex device. And getting that all fit together, uh, getting the input from everyone, and then making sure that the board is properly informed knows what we're doing, where we're heading, and converting that to a communication strategy outside. I, I, I think that's what still makes me so fascinated about the field. Um, and I'm not perfect at it in any way, but I, I learn and try to learn from the mistakes I'm making. I'm trying to be a little bit better every process we're going through to make sure that we have a better outcome. So that, that's one. But another point that I want to make is the patient point. Why do I think medical devices are so fascinating? Um, my, my really kind of, the, the most important experience I ever had in my medical device uh, career was we, we developed this uh, transophageal echocardiography probe. Uh, first, it was an annual array, also quite complex electromechanical ultrasound probe to swallow to get an image from the heart. And, and we did that in, in Fonheim, 
uh, and then uh, move it to, to Lingman Sound in Horten and started to do the manufacturing. And we were in the first clinical, um, and we were going to be the first patient. Um, this was a, at Ulmol University Hospital in Oslo. Um, we were standing there, um, and we were waiting for the first patient. And through the door come my, uh, comes my high school math teacher as the patient. So, and, and I, I designed that temperature sensor in, inside that probe. So I, I remember that room was, it just got compressed. It got much smaller and I, I had to get out, I remember. Mm -hmm. I, I couldn't be in there. And I was thinking about how, how what could go wrong. Um, and he was a great math teacher and, and uh, I had a lot of respect for him. So, but it all went well, all went well. And, um, but, but the point is that the medical devices we are developing is going to be used on your high school math teacher or your, you know, someone's father, mother, uncle. So it's about people. And, and so this, this is some, that experience to me was truly transformational, truly understanding how important uh, these devices are for people. Uh, and one day uh, I will need a medical device myself. So one day uh, I will be the patient. And, and that, that also is quite inspiring, I think, in, in developing something new and trying to, to move the medical field forward. So, so that's what, what just taught me today makes me very enthusiastic about the field, seeing the new technologies coming, seeing how this transforms medical care in the world. I, yeah, really, really powerful. I think that idea that one, it's not, you know, I used to say, if it's in your, you know, if we're putting this in your grandmother, would you, right? That reflection, but to see someone you know, right, and you respect, and you want that shifts it. And then to think, I love your idea of thinking about like someday of knowing that someday we will be right. You'll be, I'll be a recipient of a medical device. Yeah, that ups that ups a game. That sets a new that sets a new high point. Uh, to reach yeah, yeah, and, and that you know that that makes another aspect of this makes you quite humble in what yeah. you do, right? I mean, it, it it kind of takes it down to a very personal level, and uh, I think if we can bring that into companies with values that are important for the, the people in the company, the engineers and the management in the company. So that you live those values, um, I think that's going to go quite a, a long way. Yeah, we we talk about these things sometimes, as we did in earlier in the conversation, um, not devoid of the patient perspective, but you know, kind of more internally focused, right, and more kind of provider focused. And obviously, the whole reason we're doing any of this <laughs> is for the patients, is for the healthcare consumers, is to improve their lives and improve outcomes. And um, so I haven't heard the, and someday I'll have a medical device. So I like, that's great. I love that. I love that. 
So I think we're gonna yeah. gonna wrap it up with that. I don't think it's gonna get any better than that was awesome. <laughs> uh, and I just have uh, kind of one quick kind of fun closing question. Uh, you've done a lot of travel and uh, of all your kind of like, are there any places or experiences or kind of travel hacks that you think are completely unappreciated um, that have been meaningful to you? Oh, there are many, uh, many uh, places that I would never get to if I didn't do what I'm doing. So mm -hmm. in the U.S., I traveled to, I, we lived in the U.S. for five years, uh, traveled to 40 states, uh, saw a ton of hospitals, a uh, ton of people, I mean, fascinating country uh, to see. But I would say that the, the most fascinating culture to me, and the most fascinating place I've ever been is Japan. Mm. Um, because Japan is literally like an onion. You know, you look at an onion and you think that you understand it, right? And you peel off one one part of it and you look at it again and you feel, okay, maybe I, now I understand it a little bit better. But then there are, then there are more layers and more and more layers. Mm. And, and being in Japan, traveling Japan, um, going to hospitals from Hokkaido north to Fukuchi in the south, uh, that whole that whole country uh, was totally fascinating to me. The culture, the the history of the place, the food, how they enjoy the food, um, how they uh, have, even if it's a very structured country, I mean, it's, it's a big one, and they are as structured and as planned as Switzerland, mm. you know, which is totally amazing. If you, if you go to any other country that is big, normally you don't have that kind of structure everywhere. Japan is and has that kind of structure. And the, the different things we saw in, in Japan. And, uh, I remember we went to a restaurant uh, outside Nagasaki and uh, we were having uh, fish and uh, sushi, of course. And we were eating live shrimp. Uh, I still remember this, you know, picking up live shrimp from a bowl where they were swimming around, putting it into uh, soy sauce and trying to eat them. Uh, and I think the Japanese, uh, the Japanese are trying to test you. Do you, do you accept the culture or not? Uh, do you fully understand what this is about? I will never understand Japan, I think, uh, because I don't, I don't speak the language. But I think, think Japan to me, uh, from Tokyo to the small places, is a beautiful place, uh, a lot of history. Uh, Amazing food, amazing people, hardworking, dedicated professionals. That to me was uh, an amazing experience, uh, and I will always bring that with me. I mean, that, of course, Switzerland is fantastic and clean and beautiful and works uh, all that, which I also love really there for sixteen years now. But uh, Japan. Uh, 
I need the place I've been is, is by far the most fascinating place I've been so far. That's fantastic. So thank you so much for joining us today on the Message Engineer podcast and uh, really enjoyed the conversation and thanks for taking the time and that's it for now. We'll see you next time on the Message Engineer podcast. Mm-hmm.